Another episode of Muslims Want to Know, the show where I try to answer the questions you have about the Bible and Christianity. I am your host, Reverend Eric Mason. The last two episodes, you and I looked at answers to the question, has the Bible been corrupted? We learned the Bible was not corrupted through the people who copied it throughout the years, and we also learned that the church did not corrupt the Bible by including or excluding books from the Bible. Now, I could have started with some of your other questions first, but each episode is designed to build on the information from the previous one. Now that you and I know the Bible was not corrupted, I can use the Bible as a resource to help answer many of your other questions. Today we're going to be looking at the question, do Christians worship three gods or one? This means we are tackling the subject of the Trinity. So what is the Christian understanding of the Trinity? The basic understanding of the Trinity comes from the notion that a being is what something is, a person is who something is. Therefore, God, who is one being, exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A couple things to note. Christians do not believe three gods or beings make up the Trinity. Likewise, we do not believe the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are personalities of God, nor are they divisions of God. The Trinity is based on substantial evidence from the Bible. However, the word Trinity is not found anywhere in the Bible. Actually, the word was first used by our good friend Tertullian in the second century. Fun fact! Remember Tertullian? He was one of those guys who protected the Bible from corruption. He introduced the Latin word Trinitas in the 3rd century. From that word, we get the word Trinity, which literally means tri-unity or threefold unity. Thanks, Tertullian. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about the Trinity. One reason for this is because Christians have traditionally used objects to teach the concept of the Trinity. Throughout the years, Christians have used things like water, ice, and vapor to explain the Trinity. Others have used the sun, its heat, and its light to explain it, and St. Patrick even went as far as to use a three-leafed clover to explain the Trinity. These objects are good ways to describe the Trinity so long as a person has enough time to go into further detail. Unfortunately, most people use them in brief conversations, and using one of these objects in a short conversation is not sufficient enough to explain the triune nature of God. Another limitation that stands in the way of teaching on the Trinity is language itself. See, the moment we start using words like being and person, images start popping up in our minds. We start picturing people, places, or things because, well, much of what we know in this world is based on observation. Now, the Quran is very clear about why Muslims take a stance against the Christian Trinity. There are multiple passages about this subject, but I believe this short excerpt from Surah 4, Ayat 171, sums it up pretty well. It reads like this. So believe in God and his messengers, and do not say three. Refrain, it is better for you. God is only one God. Now there's more in this surah that I'm purposefully leaving out for our next episode on whether or not Lord Jesus is truly God. 
But for the purpose of this episode, we are focusing on the issue of whether Christians believe in one or three gods. Now here the Quran clearly states there is only one God, not three. See, now this is where I get to tell my Muslim friends, yes, I agree 100%. In fact, Christians agree that God is one. And why do Christians affirm that God is one? Because the Bible confirms it. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the very first commandment God wrote on the stone tablets given to Moses was this. Do not have other gods besides me. In Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Lord Jesus says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Do not have other gods besides me. The Lord is one. I will not give my glory to another. These verses confirm that God is one indeed. But Christians believe this one true God can only be understood as he eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at the Bible again. If the Bible confirms that God is one, does it have anything to say about these three persons? And the answer, of course, is yes, it does. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Lord Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. In John chapter 14, 26, Lord Jesus says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. And in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, it says, When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. For the sake of time, I'm limiting our examples to just a few verses. But the verses I just use allow us to ask several questions. If there were not three persons of the Trinity, why would the Bible include a passage about Lord Jesus telling his followers to baptize others in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Wouldn't he rather say, baptize them in the name of the one true God? If God were only one with no further distinctions, why is the Father sending the Holy Spirit in the Son's name? Why are the Father and the Holy Spirit present at the baptism of Lord Jesus? Why then does the Father call Lord Jesus his Son? Now, you still might be confused about this idea, but let me tell you, you're in good company. It was very confusing for me when I first began studying about the Trinity. And why is it confusing? Because mathematics inform us that 1 plus 1 plus 1 does not equal 1, it equals 3. In addition to this, if God is triune in nature, why didn't he plainly identify himself as such through the whole Bible? I mean, couldn't he have just said, I am a Trinity? It should comfort you like it comforted me to know that the early church wrestled with these questions until the 4th century. See, like the books of the Bible we covered in our last podcast, belief in the Trinity was widely held but not defined by the church. Because it was not officially defined, P. 
people started coming up with their own ideas about how to reconcile God's oneness with his triune nature. They were adoptionists who believed that Jesus was only a man who was adopted by the one true God. Sibelianists argued that when the Bible said Father, Son, or Spirit, it was merely referring to a different mode or aspect of God. Arianists argued that Jesus was a created being, therefore he could not be God. In order to prevent these ideas from corrupting the church's beliefs about God, the church held two councils, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. These two councils officially define the Trinity as being one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the definition Christians still use today. So how did the early church come to define God as being triune? Well, like us, they first looked at the biblical evidence for this. Then they looked at creation itself to determine if the Trinity can explain all that there is. Does the Trinity uniquely explain creation? Or can a single God with no further distinction create all there is? Now here's where my Muslim friends usually say, ah, God can create without needing to be triune. He is greater. And I can only answer by saying, after examining the evidence for the Trinity, I don't believe creation can be adequately explained by anything other than the Trinity. Now look, I know you and I are currently standing at a fork in the road, but friendships often revolve around people who don't always agree on every subject. And my hope and prayer is that you'll hear my reasons for my Christian faith just as much as I think you want me to hear your reasons for your faith in Islam. So what is our next move? If we are at a fork in the road, maybe the best way forward for us is to look at the areas about God in which we agree. So let's start there. We both believe God is one, that he is eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, and unchanging. Now that we have a starting point, let's test the truth claim I just made about the Trinity. Christians believe the Bible supports belief in the Trinity, and the Trinity is the best explanation for all of creation. Now the question we need to answer is whether or not a single God with no further distinctions would create all there is or whether the Trinity truly is the only explanation for creation. To demonstrate why Christians believe the one true God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created everything, I want to focus on the eternal quality of love. And now you can say, Eric, what does love have to do with the creation? Everything. After all, God can be eternal. He can be all-powerful, all-knowing, and unchanging, yet never create anything. But creation hangs precariously on the hinge of love, which can only be resolved through the Trinity. And now you can say, how so? I'm glad I still have your attention. Let's look at the two models of God in order to attempt to explain creation. The first model we are testing is based on a single God with no further distinctions. The second model is the Trinity. Model 1. The one true God is one being with no further distinctions. This being is all-powerful, all-knowing, and unchanging. Each of these qualities exist eternally in this model of God. Now we get to ask ourselves, would this God create anything? Notice I am not saying, could this God create, but 
would such a God create? After all, there's no problem with an all-powerful, all-knowing, and unchanging God having the ability to create everything. But we have to ask ourselves whether this God would create anything. Moving from a God who could create to a God who would create requires a God who is loving. And why is that? Because love necessarily has to be expressed toward an object of affection. If God is one being, with no further distinctions, he would have to create an object of affection in order to express his love. Therefore, this God cannot love until after he creates. Love is the hinge creation hangs on. In both our models, God is unchanging. This means God cannot add anything to himself he already did not possess. Otherwise, that would mean he is constantly changing. And if God is unchanging, love must be an eternal quality of God. But under the model that we're talking about right now, under this God, this God needs to create in order to love. Therefore, before this God created, he lacked love, which means he had to learn to love something. Now, I hope you're still following. Essentially, because he has to learn to love, he cannot be God. Now, we can try to solve this issue by saying that creation has eternally existed. Therefore, God never lacked love. But that has its own issues. You see, if God and creation are both eternal, it would mean two eternal beings exist. But God can only be one with no further distinctions. So that is out. There's one more way to try to resolve this. If one can say that God loves himself perfectly, he would not need creation to explain how he can love. Again, this comes with some issues, though. Mainly, if God loved himself perfectly, he would have no reason to create anything at all because his love would be inwardly expressed, and creation is an outward expression of love. Now, let's look at a, a second model of God. The one true God who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. First off, does the Bible confirm that love is an eternal quality of God? And the answer is yes. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And there it is. God is love. God must necessarily express love before creation, not after. Does the one true God who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit solve the issues exposed in our first model? And of course, the answer here is a resounding, yes, he does. Before we move forward, I want to throw my yellow flag in the air. I am about to use some human language to describe eternal truths about God. And the moment I start using this language, images are going to just start appearing in your mind that can be a barrier to understanding these truths about God. So just remember, Christians believe God is one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, being a father means there must be a child. Fathers are life-giving. When it comes to the Trinity, the person of the Father eternally gives life to the person of the Son. 
I'm not saying that the Son was created by the Father at some point in time. Instead, the Son is begotten of the Father. This means he eternally exists as Son. As the Son, he is eternally loved by the Father. See, this is confirmed by Lord Jesus when he says in John chapter 17, verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. God the Father loved God the Son before the world's foundation. Therefore, the Trinity does not need creation in order to love. Instead, love between the Father and the Son eternally existed before creation, and that love is eternally expressed from the Son back to the Father. This shared love between the Father and Son is the Holy Spirit. Now let's pause to clarify language. Saying the love between the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit is confusing if we are thinking about human relationships. Now you might be thinking, a feeling is not a person. And, and you're correct in thinking that. In fact, there are a lot of misinterpretations because of this statement. The Holy Spirit is not an emotion and is not a force. The Bible is abundantly clear that the Holy Spirit is a person. Acts chapter 13 verse 2 says, As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. In this verse, the followers of Lord Jesus were worshiping God, and the account clearly says the Holy Spirit spoke to them, not the Father or the Son. Furthermore, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Because the believers in the, the chapter of Acts that we just read, because they were worshiping the Lord, God would not have spoken to them through a lesser being than himself. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Lord Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. Because Lord Jesus confirms the Holy Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit must be a person not a force. Again, because God will not give his glory to another. So, we have established love eternally exists in the Trinity. Now we can turn our attention to creation. Why does anything other than God exist? Because love so overflows from the Father to the Son that the Father expresses his affection towards the Son by freely creating everything through and for the Son. The Son becomes the blueprint for all creation. This is confirmed in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16-17, through 17, where it says about the Son, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So the Father expresses love toward the Son by creating everything, and the person whose role it is to breathe life into all creation is the Holy Spirit. The first two sentences of the Bible read like this, Now the earth was formless and empty, 
Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The activity of the Holy Spirit hovering over the depths is associated with the way a bird broods over her eggs. This is an act of love which brings forth life. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and the Holy Spirit breathes life into creation. And creation creates matter and creates time. And now the overwhelming, unstoppable love of God, which is his glory, extends outward and is shared with all of creation. And creation images that love back toward God. This is exactly what King David was depicting when he wrote these words in Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. But what about mankind? Does the Trinity explain our existence? Yes, yes he does. Humans were a special part of creation. According to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, at the pinnacle of creation, the triune God says, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, were created in the image of the triune God. This made them special among all of creation. Adam and Eve could express love toward God, love toward each other, and toward creation. This is the awesome power, the beauty, glory, harmony, unity, and holiness of the one true God who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Creation cannot be explained by any other model for God. I hope this podcast helped answer the questions you have about whether or not we worship one God or three. I alluded to our next topic early in this podcast, but wanted to let you know that the next question you and I will be going through is whether Jesus is God or whether he's just a man. Now, I encourage you to study the resources I use to gather information for this week's podcast. The Bible translation I use is the Christian Standard Bible. The Quran I use is the Quran in English, translated by Talal Itani. The books I read in preparation for this podcast were The Trinity by St. Augustine, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, The Shorter Summa by Thomas Aquinas, Forgotten Trinity by James R. White, and The Trinitarian Theology of St. Thomas Aquinas by Gil Emery. I also visited various articles and resources on DesiringGod.org and Wikipedia.com. Well, that sound means it's about time to wrap up. If you like this podcast, feel free to leave a review on your favorite podcasting site. And as always, if you have specific questions about what you heard on the show or want me to elaborate a bit more on a point I made, you can submit questions by visiting our page at www dot anchor dot fm forward slash muslims want to know i think you can even ask questions using your microphone or camera and i can play those questions in future episodes and i'll do my best to answer those as well i also encourage you to reach out to a christian friend or co-worker and ask them about things you hear on this podcast 
If you hear something about Islam you didn't know before, research it, or ask your Muslim friends or imam about it. As always, I thank you so much for your time, and God bless.